Hi, I'm Bernard Leung and you may know me as an executive who runs a side project called Analyze Asia Podcast and in my spare time, I want to earn my freedom and do the work that matters. You're listening to Analyze Asia, the weekly podcast dedicated to business technology and media in Asia and today I have Steve Glaveski, host of Future Square Podcast and recently an author of a book, Employee to Entrepreneur, How to Earn Your Freedom and Do Work That Matters. Welcome Steve and it's great to have you here again on our podcast. How have life been treating you? Yeah, well, it's a pleasure to be back on the program, Bernard, and it's been great to see Analyze Asia grow from strength to strength over the past year and a half since we last spoke, I think, on the podcast. And life's been treating me really well. Been very busy 18 or so months. As you alluded to, I released a book called Employee to Entrepreneur, which is all about helping corporate executives, some of whom may be somewhat institutionalized, make the leap to entrepreneur and how to go about that while increasing your chances of success. We've also turned our children's entrepreneurship program, Lemonade Stand, into an online platform, which will be pushing through English-speaking countries in the second half of this year. And another thing of note has been our startup matching programs with Collective Campus. As you know, I'm a big believer that the best way that startups and corporates can work together is when a corporate becomes a customer of a startup and that startup solves an immediate need for that corporate. And so we've been working with companies like NTUC Income in Singapore to partner them with startups that are aligned that can help them solve immediate problems. And those startups can be from across all of Asia. That's been keeping us really busy. And outside of that, there's been HBR articles on six hour work days. I've got a children's book in the works on entrepreneurship, lots and lots of fun stuff. So how has the Future Square podcast evolved since our last conversation? By the way, you have a very good selection of guests. <laughs> I'm always wondering, like, how did Steve get these great guys on his show? Yeah, I mean, it has evolved somewhat. I guess the show was originally all about corporate innovation and entrepreneurship. But after a while, you know, I realized that innovation is about so much more than just innovation. It's about bringing together disparate topics and different disciplines. And ultimately, you know, I wanted it to be more interesting than just talking to people who are working in innovation, but I wanted to talk to comedians. I wanted to talk to neuroscientists. I wanted to talk to psychologists and philosophers. And essentially, that's what the show is all about now. And our tagline is no longer corporate innovation and entrepreneurship, but our tagline is helping you navigate a brave new world by helping you think in a multidisciplinary way. So if I just look at some of the most recent guests I've had on the show, we've had people talking about flow. I had Andrew Tarvin talking about humor at work. I had Ryan Serhant the star of Million Dollar Listing, talking about sales. I've had Robert Greene talking about the laws of human nature, so obviously a huge author. And then, again, I still have my innovation people, such as Beth Comstock, who was heading up innovation over at GE alongside Jeff Immelt before they were taken down by activist investors who weren't happy with the core business or the direction of the core business. So the podcast has evolved, and it's just given me a lot more freedom to talk to all sorts of people, which I think is the best way to be an innovator. It's all about connecting dots across disparate topics. Having such an interesting podcast, I also want to ask you as a fellow podcaster, what are your thoughts on the recent acquisitions made by Spotify in podcasting? And where do you see the trends in podcasting for Asia Pacific going? Sure. Great question. And I think with respect to Spotify, I mean... Growing up, I used to listen to just music, but nowadays for every one hour of music I listen to, I probably listen to about two or three hours of podcasts. And this is reflective of a growing number of people. And obviously Spotify is trying to get into that market. 
I don't know about your stats, but when I look at my podcast stats, only about 5% come from Spotify. So obviously, they're doing what they can by acquiring companies like Gimlet to grow their market share. But as far as podcasting itself is concerned, I feel like we're still in the embryonic stages, even though it's you know been around in some way, shape or form for over 10 years. It's still early days. Only about two thirds of Americans have heard about podcasts. Only half, about 50% of Americans listen to a podcast once a month. So it's still a growing space. But in terms of monetization, there's a lot of different things that people are going to try to do, whether or not it works, who knows? I mean, you've got companies who are putting podcasts behind paywalls. So companies like Luminary and Acast, which was recently launched, they're looking at putting podcasts behind paywalls. You've got podcasters out there who will publish free content, but then say, hey, if you want to access the audience Q&A or if you want to access an additional hour of this conversation, you can do so by signing up to, you know, my Patreon account or something like that, and then providing them with extra content. I think we're going to see a number of different things. I mean, I like to think about podcasting today as being like the wild, wild west of the early days of the internet, and that the business models that evolve, that rise to the top, will potentially be quite different from what we're used to today. But one thing I definitely don't want to see is the consolidation of audience by big media companies because then we basically have radio again and boring conversations that are aligned with media interests and things to that effect. And I think the beauty of podcasting is that it has given everybody a voice and that you can go out there and have a 30 minute, one hour, two hour, or in the case of Joe Rogan, a four hour conversation. And that's completely fine. And that brings new perspectives to the table. One other thing that I will think about in this space is perhaps a platform that does what medium does in blogging, whereby you can actually get paid as a writer. Medium basically curates the best stuff. And you know, I myself, for so long, my blogs and my content has been essentially a form of marketing and brand building. But recently, I started publishing on Medium. And my blogs on average are earning between you know, 30 to 50 US dollars a month, which isn't a lot, but I have a lot of them. And so it is actually a nice little side income, which you could potentially see something like that happening. But, but then the question becomes, who's curating the content and who's selecting what rises to the top because then you start to influence discourse and we saw what happened in 2016 with the u.s election where platforms were essentially able to influence public sentiment so i can see a lot of things evolving in this space but it's definitely not black and white so here's the thing i am interested to ask you then i often see podcasting today is a little bit like blogging in the early 2000s where everyone has a voice and then subsequently that particular thing called blogging is consolidated today. The social media platforms basically control the traffic. You know, your articles are either in Medium, LinkedIn, or pick your favorite big platform. Yeah. The beauty of podcasting for me, and even for my own articles, and sometimes I'm just like trying to tell myself, I don't want to publish in all these places because it just makes me feel good about how many likes I get. So I started to be more focused just on my own personal side, like writing it in the same spirit as I've done when I was blogging and now podcasting. I just want to hear your thoughts on that. I think podcasting to some extent is still a cottage industry Mm -hmm. in Asia Pacific. Do you see it actually getting bigger or you have to wait for everything in the US to start consolidating and then come to this market? Video is actually where most people are going. They always say video. Why aren't you doing video instead of podcasting? (laughs) That's a great question. And it's something we've considered and potentially will do more of the video space. 
we have run a number of experiments in this space and the early experiments weren't very successful. So we doubled down on the stuff that's actually working because, you know, when you have limited resources, you can only do so many things. Yeah, look, I totally hear you when it comes down to not hosting your stuff on certain platforms because then it's just about likes and my opinion on likes and comments is that it's just there to help us or to help the media companies capture more of our attention because you know we get a dopamine hit every time we see a little like or a comment and that keeps us coming back for more and i think you know ideally if you can build your own platform your own presence then that is the best way to go however it's just a lot more challenging to do that there are examples in the blogging space for example, Stratechery, where he, I forgot the writer's name. Ben Thompson? Yes, yes. So, you know, he's got a fantastic platform whereby he publishes really thought-provoking stuff on what's happening in technology. And he charges people about, I think it's 10 US dollars a month. But the quality is a reflection of that. So you can do it, but it's not necessarily easy. So it's a question of whether or not you want to try and build both up at the same time, which is what I'm doing. You know, I'm on all the platforms, but at the same time, I've got futuresquared.xyz. I've got the steveglaveski.com website where I have podcasts and blogs as well. So it's a matter of, I suppose, leveraging what you can to build that brand up and then doubling down where the opportunities lie. So that comes to the main subject of the day. First of all, thank you for sending me a copy of the book. I know you have been working on the book and I was surprised to see in front of my <laughs> desk. So your book, Employee to Entrepreneur, How to Earn Your Freedom and Do Work That Matters. is something that I have been doing for a long time. I've been a corporate employee since 2012 after working in a startup as a co-founder for a few years and then go into that. And I've always been thinking about going back. I guess the way I always say it is, you can take a man off being an entrepreneur off the street, but you cannot take the entrepreneur away from the man. I agree. So I wanted to ask you because I read your preface. I think that's one thing I always do in reading a book. I always try to understand the motivation of the writer. Mm -hmm. So what is the backstory behind writing this book? I understand that you got some help from very, very notable people along the process. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the backstory, firstly, at a sort of macroeconomic level, you know, about 50% of people are dissatisfied at work. I know in Australia and in the US, one in three people want to start a business, but failure rates for businesses are about 95%. Now, in terms of my personal backstory, you know, I spent about 10 years in the corporate world with brands like EY, KPMG, Macquarie Bank. And while I definitely learned a lot during the early days, after a while, Stone's Law kicked in and that tapered off and it became a matter of playing politics. And, you know, I found myself, what I say in the book is that I was miserably comfortable, had the six-figure income, the corporate junkets, the business class flights, all that sort of stuff. But deep down, I just wasn't really content. I wasn't fulfilled and I was looking for more. And my, I suppose, my leap into entrepreneurship came about when I built a simple prototype for a company called Hotdesk, which was essentially an Airbnb for office space. I spent about $2,000 building this prototype while I was working at Macquarie Bank full-time. And I then proceeded to send out a press release that I wrote myself to about 100 journalists. And of those 100 journalists, of course, only one got back to me, which is about as much as you can expect. But it happened to be a journalist from the Australian, one of Australia's biggest newspapers. They published this story it landed about a week later. It also landed in the Macquarie News, which is a daily email of news clippings that get sent to every employee of the bank, including my manager. So I had some explaining to do. And the explanation was that it was just a little side project, which to be truthful at the time, that's all it was. But investors 
saw that article and within three months I managed to raise some seed funding to the tune of about $160,000. That was my ticket out of the corporate world and into entrepreneurship. But I quickly, quickly learned that funding does not equal market validation. And also what I learned is that what got me here in the corporate world won't get me there in the startup world. Because in the corporate world, we're dealing with a lot of certainty around our business model, customers, how we make money. You're essentially playing defense in many cases. Whereas in the entrepreneurial domain, where you're doing something that's completely new, ambiguous, fraught with uncertainty, you need to move quickly. You need to experiment. You need to play offense. And I learned that a lot of the skills I picked up in the corporate world, some of them were transferable, but many of them were somewhat, I suppose, they inhibited my success or at least my initial foray into entrepreneurship. And how did this book eventually assemble into its present form then? You work with the podcast. How did that get into the book? So this book essentially, I mean, uh, of course, as, as uh, you're aware, I mean, Hot Desk evolved into Collective Campus and Collective Campus just last year was named one of Australia's fastest growing new companies. And this book essentially came about because of the work that I was doing, whether it was the podcast, whether it was the blogging, the opportunity arose out of that because I made myself visible. It's part of that personal branding piece. And the opportunity arose to essentially write a book. But the opportunity was there. However, I still needed to go through the process. So for example, one thing I did was I leveraged some of my Future Squared guests to get that book deal. So for example, Tim Harford, who wrote books like The Undercover Economist and Messy, I spoke to him and he said, hey, here's how do you write a compelling nonfiction book proposal. So I took that and then I basically channeled my inner entrepreneur, which was, you know, I'm going to hear no a lot. So just concede that every no is going to get you closer to a yes. So I sent out this book proposal to about 40 or so publishers and agents. And I heard no for the first 39 times. But with every subsequent time I heard no, I learned why I heard no, what I could have improved, and I improved the proposal as I went along. And I also saved the bigger publishers, the publishers I actually wanted to work with for the end, so that I learned from the publishers that were smaller, that I didn't really want to work with. But then once I got to submitting to the likes of, say, Wiley, I had a really honed book proposal. And Wiley were the, was the publisher that eventually picked it up and ran with it. And I think the book essentially tries to distill what is you know seven years of learning in this space, whether it's immersive experiential learning as an entrepreneur, whether it's through the 100 plus startups that I've worked with over the past few years, whether it's through devouring hundreds of books and hundreds of podcast episodes. It's all about distilling that into one book that helps corporate executives turn entrepreneur, avoid many of the common pitfalls, avoid jumping to conclusions and avoid the dreaded analysis paralysis as well. You know, the biggest challenge for me reading the book is because I came from the other side. <laughs> Maybe you need to write that book, Entrepreneur to Employee. <laughs> nah, I think for me, I think it's better to actually spend time building things. Mm -hmm. And I want to ask you this, in your mind, I think you have sort of illustrated a little bit of the reason why you wrote a book. I guess my question to you is, what is the main theme of the book and who are the intended audience? I think corporate employees who aspire to be entrepreneurs is one group, but I think from reading the book, I felt you're actually trying to reach out to a bigger group of people, maybe even people who may be deciding between a corporate career and being an entrepreneur too. 
Yeah. So, I mean, there is obviously the, the core audience, which is executives who are thinking about making the leap, or maybe they already have made the leap, but they're not um, having much joy. Another audience is people who are in the corporate world. So innovators, because I think there is a lot that they can learn about the mindset of an entrepreneur and how an entrepreneur goes about making decisions in a uncertain space. But I actually devote an entire chapter to alternatives to entrepreneurship. Because I see so many people who may read Mashable or TechCrunch or Tech in Asia and they'll think, oh, wow, look at all these entrepreneurs and startups raising millions of dollars. I should do that too. And, you know, I think they drink the Kool-Aid and they think that it's the only answer or the only alternative to an unfulfilling work life. But maybe it's a matter of, hey, making a lateral move in the organization you're currently at. Maybe it's a matter of joining another organization or maybe it's a matter of joining a well-funded startup so you're not starting from scratch or potentially you just don't have any hobbies and maybe if you actually take up a hobby, you'll be more content in your day-to-day work because there are studies that show the more time you spend, say, in flow, which you can derive from hobbies, the more positive disposition you have in life, the more of a positive outlook you have and the more satisfied you are. So you know, if people are unsatisfied with work, if they hate their job, if they hate their boss, if they're not getting paid enough, you know, entrepreneurship isn't necessarily the answer because entrepreneurship means you're potentially going to work twice as many hours, at least when you first start out for half as much pay. And that may be for a year, maybe two, maybe three, maybe forever. If you never really become a successful entrepreneur and you'll have to go back into the corporate world, potentially taking a step back in terms of remuneration and titles. So I try to put that forward in the book because entrepreneurship isn't easy. You know, 96% of startups fail and If you're going to explore entrepreneurship, you need to do it for the right reasons. And you need to do something that essentially aligns with your strengths, your natural inclinations, something that you truly believe in, and perhaps something that you can bring some, you know, domain expertise to the table. And that's going to give you a distinct advantage over just doing something because you think it will make you money and give you some freedom. So is freedom really the difference between an employee and entrepreneur? I think that's a very important question for a lot of people out there. I mean, I could be a corporate employee, but for me, in every corporate job, I think I enjoyed it. I treat it as in I go to work enjoying what I do. And the moment I stop enjoying what I do, that's when I start to move on to. Yeah, of course. And I think freedom, in terms of how I define freedom, it's two things, right? It's freedom from things, freedom from things you don't want to do, and then also freedom to do things. So freedom to do the kind of work you want to do. And, you know, you can find that freedom inside the corporate world that there is no reason you can't. And, and also, I mean, if you have your freedom from, say, a job you don't like, but then you're an entrepreneur and you've got a mortgage that you need to service, but you're barely making any money, I mean, that doesn't sound like freedom to me either because you're kind of tied to your job and you can't do anything else because you haven't got any money or, or freedom or mental capacity to do anything else. So, you know, in terms of entrepreneurship, freedom is part of it. But to me, an entrepreneur is someone who is building stuff in an uncertain environment taking something fundamentally new to the market. And that is one of the big things. So it's about being able to navigate uncertainty. But the biggest thing about entrepreneurship is really mindset. That's what really differentiates an entrepreneur from everyone else, in my opinion. Being able to hear no a hundred times just to get to yes once, having a really strong relationship with adversity, and then believing in something that absolutely everyone else thinks is crazy, but you believe in it and you execute on it and eventually you prove everyone wrong. But to me, it comes down to mindset. And as former U.S. President Calvin Coolidge said, nothing in this world will take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Genius will not. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence alone is omnipotent. And if there was just one skill that 
entrepreneurs need or one attribute that entrepreneurs need to be successful, it really is persistence. Mm. Coming from the other side of the house, I often thought about being an entrepreneur first and going into a corporate employee setting is actually much better than the other way around. Because what I discover, surprisingly, is that when you have things like reorganization, making people redundant, because I went through a death experience before they have to shut down a company and have to make people redundant without having a choice. I find that that is like the worst thing that have ever happened to me. And whatever I, I see in the corporate world is nothing compared to that. And so it makes me very resilient against it. But if I flip it back to the other side, which is where your book is really about, what are the early steps for an employee to take before taking the leap in being an entrepreneur? Yeah, and just real quick on what you said there, I totally agree. I think if you can incorporate a lot more resilience building into your life and stuff that is a struggle, then you'll find certain things like a little bit of adversity in the workplace doesn't really harm you. So, you know, I like to put myself through a grueling workout at 6am in the morning and then a cold shower and start my day with stuff that I just don't want to do and, you know, explore things like open mic stand-up comedy, which is absolutely scary. But the more you do stuff like that, you just build this thick skin and this resilience that you know if your job gets taken away from you as an entrepreneur as a builder you know that you can just build your own income stream or you can just find a job somewhere else because you know that you are valued so in terms of how do you go about taking your idea to execution what do you do well first and foremost you need to define what the key assumptions underpinning this idea actually are but you also need to determine is this something you can build does it align with your natural strengths and inclinations do you think it will make money I mean, that essentially aligns with Jim Collins's hedgehog theory, right? So what's the one thing that you can do better than anyone else in the world? It's got to make money and it's got to be something that you're passionate about. Otherwise, entrepreneurship requires us to play the long game. And if you're giving up early, I mean, if you're not really into it and if it doesn't align with your strengths, you're probably not going to get the results you need to motivate you to keep going and to keep pushing that big boulder up a hill. So there would be some things that I would reflect on. But then once you align on that, it is a matter of identifying what are the key assumptions underpinning the business model you've come up with and then finding ways to quickly, cheaply, effectively test those through low fidelity prototypes, through speaking with people, asking good questions to increase the chances of taking something to market that people actually want. Because I mentioned earlier, 96% of startups fail and early stage ventures fail. And CB Insights published a report which found that in more than half of those cases, it's market failure that drives that. So it's our tendency to jump to conclusions. So whatever you can do to place a lot of small bets when there is a lot of ambiguity, you know, I'm a big believer that when there is ambiguity, you go for diversity in terms of your experiments. And then once you have less ambiguity, you have more certainty, then you can double down. So that is essentially what I would do. And you know, what I'm talking about, there isn't anything fundamentally new that is out of military strategy. That's the OODA loop that John Boyd talks about, you know, observe, orient, decide, act. The smaller your OODA loop, the faster you can figure out what works. And of course, in the world of startups, the lean startup essentially leverages that approach. So I often have this question. I know it's a little bit asked many, many times. Mm -hmm. Can everyone be an entrepreneur? Or I think maybe to me, more importantly, can they just embrace the entrepreneurial mindset? Because there are drivers to how everyone out there would decide to be and not to be an entrepreneur. Yeah, of course. And I believe that people's decisions and dispositions are based on a number of factors. It's based on DNA, you know, evolutionary biology, upbringing, past experience. There's a lot of stuff that goes into it. Sydney University published a study last year called Red Brain, Blue Brain, 
which found that certain people who tend to be either liberal voters or entrepreneurial, they are more open to uncertainty. And that's because the amygdala, the part in their brain that is all about threat detection, isn't very sensitive. It's not hyperactive. Whereas other people, which they defined as red brain, so conservative voters, managers, their amygdala lights up like a Christmas tree whenever they're assessing threats and risks. So they tend to make good managers of what is and keeping the ship afloat. So from a biological perspective, it's easy to say that certain people are born to be entrepreneurs. But again, you know, I think that you can create habits by changing your environment. So if it's a big corporate organization and in order to take an idea forward, people need to complete a business case. And then that business case gets reviewed once a month by a big steering committee and the minimum investment amount is $50,000. Then that doesn't really support the kind of early stage innovation that I'm talking about, which is all about placing lots and lots and lots of small bets. But if you create an environment whereby a person, an executive with an idea can just invest $50 into an early stage prototype. And then maybe if they can get some early validation, then it's $500 then it's $1,000. Then you're creating an environment where people can start acting like entrepreneurs. So I think it's a combination of your actual biological dispositions plus your environment. So anybody can start to behave like an entrepreneur, but it's just like if you've never been to the gym before and you want to start going to the gym, it's not a matter of rocking up one morning and then lifting a hundred kilos. It's a matter of maybe turning up for 10 minutes a day, maybe spending five minutes on the treadmill and then lifting a, a light weight. And then after doing that for a couple of weeks, you say, well, I'm here for 10 minutes a day. Maybe I'll do 20 minutes a day and I'll go a little heavier. So whenever we try and introduce new things to our day-to-day -day routine and the way we see the world, and our brains are designed to conserve energy. So our brain's going to say, I don't like this new thing. I don't like learning about it. But the more you do it, the more you practice it, it's like a muscle and you'll get better at acting like an entrepreneur and thinking like an entrepreneur. Totally agree with you because for me, my podcast is basically to actually exercise my entrepreneur muscles that may be deteriorated with a corporate career. But the question I want to point you to is, should everyone have a side project before they start to be an entrepreneur? That's a, it's a good question and it's a tough one to answer because I think it requires a little bit of context around what the project is because on one side, I do say that if you have a side project, you can test it, you can use your full-time job to fund the product until you get validation. But at the same time, sometimes it's a matter of needing to be available full-time on that side hustle in order to give it the love it needs because if you're working, say, full-time at a corporate job, till about 6 p.m. every night and then you get home, maybe you've got a family, you have dinner with the family and then eventually at about 8 o'clock, 8.30, you sit down to spend an hour or two on your side hustle. By that point, in terms of your cognitive channel capacity, there's not much left. So you're basically investing scraps into that side hustle. So if it doesn't succeed, it's probably not a reflection of the idea. It could be a reflection of the fact that you know, you, you didn't give your best energy to that startup. You know, like if you're going to grow flowers, you need to give them good soil and sunlight and water. It's not enough to just plant it and hope that it will grow. So one thing that I propose in the book, and it's something that I practiced myself, is something called the reverse side hustle. Now, this is where if you've been in the corporate world for 10, 15 years, then chances are you can pick up a contract gig. Contract gigs tend to pay quite well per hour. You might only need to work two days a week to sustain a reasonable lifestyle, to pay your bills. And that will free you up to invest, say, three full workdays 
into your side hustle, which essentially becomes your main hustle and the, the actual paying job becomes a bit of a side hustle, if you will. So that's something that people listening to this who are thinking about making the leap, who are thinking about side hustles, might want to explore because it just means you get the best of both worlds. You have the income coming in, but you get more time to invest in your startup and that's more cognitive energy where you are at your absolute best and not just the last hour or two of the evening. One thing I do enjoy reading your book because it gives me a way to reflect from what the other side looks like is the ability to actually distill all the concepts that we use in startups, for example, lean startup method, you know, thinking about how to put a side hustle, like where you propose reverse side hustle and the thing that the individual steps to take. And I want you to talk a little bit about that. What are the steps for an individual to take from idea to execution? I think one of the most useful thing in your book is the how part. Yeah. So I think it kind of aligns with what I was saying a few moments ago in terms of the assumptions. So, but when it comes to say defining and prioritizing your assumptions, you know, I like to look at certainty and impact. So if I have say four assumptions, I will rate out of 10, how certain is this assumption? Is it a, a seven? Okay. It's a seven. And then what's the impact if this assumption is true or false? And it could be a very high impact. So it might be 10. So then I'm going to take 10 and divide it by the certainty and end up with say 1.33 roughly. And then I might take time. Is this an assumption that matters today or an assumption that matters well into the future? And then if it's into the future, it's five. If it's today, it's a one. So if it's today, 1.3 divided by one equals 1.3. So I will provide you with a link to an actual table so people can make some sense of that because when I talk through it, it's harder to understand than when you visualize it. But that essentially helps provide people with methodical way of prioritizing assumptions because it's easy to just come up with a hundred assumptions and try and test them all. But more often than not, when entrepreneurs test their assumptions, they test stuff that we already know to be true. They test stuff that's comfortable and easy to test, but what they're not testing is the stuff that is absolutely key. So to provide you with an example, so your audience gets a better understanding of this. If I was say founders of Uber in 2007, and I wanted to define our key assumption, well, in that case, the key assumption would essentially be trust. So once you've gone through that process to define the assumption, trust. Okay, well, I could either go out and build the platform, onboard drivers, do the marketing, or I could just go out on a Saturday night to a busy taxi rank and then just ask people if they'd like to pay $20 for a ride home in a private car. Of course, you can show them some identification so they allay some of their concerns and see how many people actually say yes. What percentage of people say, yes, I will take a ride home? What you'll find is you'll probably get maybe 5% of people who say yes in, in that instance, but you'll also start to get a profile of what your early adopter looks like. Because whenever you're taking something fundamentally new to the market, it's not about building something with all of the bells and whistles for all of the market. It's about solving a problem or creating some value for a very, 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 very small amount of the market, which amounts to your early adopters. And those early adopters are the ones that are going to help you build cash flow that you can reinvest into the growth of the business but they're also going to help you determine what are the features you need to incorporate into this as you build it out. So it really comes down to putting that business model together, defining the key assumptions, finding low fidelity ways to test those assumptions, learning and iterating quickly as you build out your business. And I always say, don't optimize for fundraising from day one, because that can be more of a curse than a blessing. 
if you raise early, you're going to give away a big chunk of your business for a very small amount of money. You also might find that your business very quickly becomes a financial instrument. And if you didn't like being accountable to people in the corporate world, well, guess what? Now you're accountable to investors. And if you don't know how to read a term sheet, you might end up with things like liquidation preferences, where for if you ever do exit, for every $1 an investor put in, they might get $3 out. So you'll be left with a very, very small amount of the pie. So what you want to do is build a business using cash flow. If and only if you need the money to scale, to scale quickly, then you want to raise when you actually have revenue, because then you can raise at a higher valuation, give away less of your business and raise from sophisticated investors who are actually going to be able to help you build your business. Because I've seen a lot of horror stories of startups who give away, say, 30% of their business for $200,000 from day one, and they give it to some early stage angel investor who just doesn't have any of the networks or expertise to help them grow their business in any way. And other investors who are more sophisticated don't really want to look at them because they've given away such a big piece of the pie to an unsophisticated investor, which also reflects poorly on the entrepreneurs. So there's a hell of a lot of things to reflect on in that space, but there's some of the key things that I would start to think about if I was looking to, to take an idea through to execution. So because you're doing two jobs at a time, the employee job and the entrepreneur job. So what kind of productivity hacks would you recommend to manage time? I think you have a couple of them in the book, right? Yeah, yeah, there's quite a few in the book. I actually wrote an article for Harvard Business Review called The Case for the Six-Hour Workday, which explores quite a few of them. But at its core, a simple acronym I like to use, PCOATS, prioritize. So prioritize by the most important things. And you can use you know, 80-20 to do that. You can use ICE, which is impact, confidence, and ease to help you prioritize the most important things. C for cut, cut out stuff that just doesn't add value. We have a tendency to do stuff because we've always done it. But if it's not really adding value, you need to get rid of it. You want to outsource. Today, it's so easy to outsource things online for five to 10 US dollars an hour to a reasonably good quality. If I think about all the stuff that I'm outsourcing, probably amounts to about 30 hours of work a week that I'm not doing, that I don't need to think about. It just gets done. Automate. Automation nowadays, whether it's sales, whether it's customer service, whether it's marketing, there is no excuse not to be automating an example that I can give you in that space is if I was to publish a Facebook live video, I've got a, a setup that will automatically turn that into an audiogram, a YouTube video, a podcast, a social media posts on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on Facebook, on Instagram. Now, if you were to do all of that yourself, it might take you five hours, but thanks to the power of automation, thanks to platforms like Zapier, you can get that done in basically the click of a button. And then the last two in P codes was basically T for test. To avoid jumping to conclusions or analysis paralysis, you want to be always testing. So define the key metrics to underpin what you're doing. Learn from those. And when things are no longer adding value, just get rid of them. And then finally, S for start your engine. So this is all about what are the things you can do to get you into flow? Because when we're in flow, um, the physiological state where we are deeply immersed in one thing and the rest of the world fades away, we are up to five times more productive than what we normally are. So what are those things you can do to get into flow? You might listen to brain.fm, which is basically what we call binaural beats or, or white noise. And I find when I listen to that for about five minutes, I just get so, so locked into what I'm doing. It could be that you work on the hardest thing first. If I'm looking at a blank page and I'm writing a 2000 word article, I will just channel Tim Ferriss and do what he does, which is 200 crappy words. You know, don't set expectations on the quality, just start writing 200 crappy words. And once you start writing, your brain gives you a bit of a dopaminogenic response, right? You get a dopamine hit, the reward mechanisms kick in, and then it's much easier to keep writing and work off that momentum. It's like they say, if a 
object is stationary, it requires a lot more force to move it. But once it's already moving, it's much easier to keep it moving. And there's a number of other things in that space, whether it's working out in the morning, meditating, different things like that, that can help you to get focused for your day. So PCOTS is the acronym. Brain.fm is a good productivity hack. But really where I see most executives and entrepreneurs wasting their time and losing their productivity is through things like notifications on their desktop, on their phones, and constantly being in this space of hyper-responsiveness. I would say turn them off. And if you are going to send an email, you can use a Chrome plugin called Compose Email Window, which will just open the Compose window. Because if you need to go into your inbox to send an email, chances are you're going to see other emails and you're going to click on them and respond to them. And then 30 minutes later, you'll start thinking, oh, what was I going to do? Oh, right. I was going to send that email. And so avoid inbox zero because to me, inbox zero just means you're really good at responding to other people's demands in your time. So since you brought up the question about procrastination and distractions from the smartphone, how do you deal with it then? Like anything, you know, you need to build the habit. So in my case, first and foremost, I turned off notifications. That makes it easier. Second, create an environment where it's easier not to look at it. I guess a lot of people listening to this, you know, when was the last time you read a book for say an hour without looking at your phone? Nine out of 10 people will probably say they don't remember that, maybe since before smartphones came along. So I would say create an environment, put the phone in another room. You know, if I don't want to eat potato chips at 10 p.m. in the evening, I won't have them in the house. It's much easier for me to create an environment that will elicit the kind of behaviors that I want or that I desire than it is to use willpower because willpower is essentially finite. And when you get to say 8 p.m., 9 p.m., 10 p.m., you've already made reasonable decisions you can make and it's much harder to use willpower. So create an environment. For example, I don't use my phone as an alarm clock. I bought a $10 cheap alarm clock from you know, Kmart or something like that. And I use that to wake me up in the morning. And then for the first two hours of the day, the only reason I look at my phone is to tee up a podcast or some music. So something to accompany me in the gym, but I won't look at social media. I won't text. I won't look at email. That way you give your brain some space because we spend a lot of time talking about innovation, entrepreneurship, but a big part of creativity is just giving your mind some time to wonder and not think and not consume and not do anything. But if you're looking at your phone first thing in the morning and your emails, you're just filling it up with junk. So you need to give it that space. So I wrote an article as well in Harvard Business Review called Stop letting push notifications ruin your productivity. So listeners can check out that article, which provides a little bit more guidance and advice on what to do in that space. But just one stat that I really want to call out in this space is that even micro interruptions, so that's one-tenth of a second. So for example, I receive a notification on my phone. I don't even click on it, but I see it. If I'm immersed in a task, that micro notification, if I have many of them over the course of the day, a recent study found that that can cut my productivity by up to 40% because it's still interrupting my train of thought, regardless of whether or not I actually pursue that notification. So, you know, guys like Jason Fried, who I had the pleasure of speaking with on my podcast, he's the founder of Basecamp and he wrote books like Rework and Remote. He basically has his phone on airplane mode during the day and it only lets certain people through. So obviously if you're in sales, it's probably not going to work. But if you're an entrepreneur who needs to be using your brain to think critically, to create, then the less time you are in a responsive state and the more time you are in a deliberate state, the better off you'll be. So what's next from this book then? Will you be writing another book now? Yeah, I actually have just put together a book proposal for my next book, which is tentatively called Six Hours or Less, which is based on my Harvard article on the six-hour workday. And that's essentially all about 
productivity hacks, um, outsourcing, automation, prioritization, and also why this matters because we have a tendency in the startup world to beat our chests and you know proudly proclaim that we're working 14 hour days. And if you listen to people like Gary Vaynerchuk, they say that's what you should be doing. But you know, I don't think anybody laid on their deathbed and said, oh, well, I wish I worked 80 hours a week instead of 70 hours a week. <laughs> Nobody says that. What people say is they wish they spent more time with their family, with their friends, exploring the world, you know, putting themselves out of their comfort zone. And you can only really get into deep work or flow for about four hours a day. But we have a tendency to just sit at our desks and work on residual stuff until well until the night. So it's about a shift in how people work so that they can create more value in less time and also liberate more time for all the other stuff that matters, otherwise known as life. So I have a Tim Ferriss question for you. <laughs> if you've got a billboard, what would be the message you put on that billboard then? Uh, probably don't compare yourself. Comparison is essentially the thief of joy. I think it was Mark Twain who said that, although he's been misattributed with many quotes. And if I am an entrepreneur, particularly you know, in light of this conversation, if I'm jumping out of the corporate world into entrepreneurship, it's easy for me to compare myself to people that I used to work with. And obviously, they're going to be making more than me when I'm just starting out. So I want to look at when I'm starting, learning metrics over earning metrics, like what matters to me and value other things like the freedom that you've got to try and do your own thing. You know, that's something that you want to value rather than just how much money am I making today? Because if you're looking at that metric to begin with, it's kind of like looking at ROI for a disruptive innovation in a corporate organization. You're going to kill the innovation before it has time to really blossom into something. But again, you don't want to compare yourself to other entrepreneurs because maybe they've been at it for longer than you. And you just want to compare yourself to who you were yesterday and always look to get better. Because if you can get 1% better every single day, that amounts to being 37 times better by the end of the year. So rather than looking for some quantum leap overnight, just try to get a little bit better every day. And another reason why I say don't compare yourself is because so many people on social media nowadays will jump on social and they'll see everybody else putting their best foot forward and they'll think, oh, their life's so amazing, my life sucks, and it can just put people in a really toxic state. But just remember that that's just people's best foot forward. I spoke with Brittany Hennessy, who represents a lot of influencers, and she basically said, look, it's all fake. Uh, the photos you see, they've taken like 50 versions of those photos in different lighting with different filters, and, and more often than not, they're just deriving their entire identity from how many likes they get on social media, which is not a very healthy place to be. And you know, we all have strengths and we all have weaknesses. I like to talk about Larry King, who, you know, one of the most legendary TV personalities of all time, one of the best interviewers of all time. He's great at that. But at the same time, he's been married like eight times. And I think three of those times were to the same woman. So because he's great at one area, doesn't make him great in other areas. And it's the same with everyone else. That's why I say don't compare yourself and just try and be the best possible person that you can be. So Steve, many thanks for coming on the show. And it's in closing before we take off. But I really enjoyed the book and I would recommend your book, Employee to Entrepreneur. And I think I will wish you all the best for the next book. So in closing, two questions. First one, can you recommend a book or movie or podcast or anything which recently made an impact to your work and personal life? Uh, I'm going to fall victim to the recency bias because I just finished reading A Trillion Dollar Coach, which was by Eric Schmidt and a couple of other Google colleagues. And that's all about Bill Campbell, who was arguably the most legendary business coach in Silicon Valley. And it's crazy because this guy, 
he likes to say in the book, I took no stock, no cash and no shit because basically he worked for free. He made his money working for the likes of Intuit and then he coached the likes of Steve Jobs, Eric Schmidt, Mark Zuckerberg, Larry Page, numerous other tech luminaries. And this book basically distills all of his teachings because he was a very private person and he passed away about three years ago. But some of his mentees said, look, we've got to take his lessons and put them into a book so that everybody can benefit from them. And I think one of the things that I really got out of the book, which, you know, it's not necessarily that I wasn't doing this before, but it was really about putting the human first. You know, we all have a tendency to get caught up in metrics and growth at all costs. But if you're an entrepreneur, put your people first. One thing they did at Google was trip reports, where if they had a business meeting and it was on a Monday, they would spend the first 10 minutes really trying to understand what people's weekends involved and trying to unpack stories so that they could get a better understanding of the people before they started talking about business. And that would just strengthen the relationships that they had. So for me, that book just kind of pushed me to care more than perhaps I might have before. I mean, I always cared about my people, but it's just about making sure you don't lose that. How do my audience find you? Your audience can find me numerous places. If they want to learn more about the book and download a free bonus bundle with lots of tips and techniques on execution, experimentation, growth hacking, marketing, you name it, they can do so at employee2entrepreneur.io. They can find out more about Collective Campus at collectivecampus.io and the podcast at futuresquared.xyz. But outside of that, just go to steveglaveski.com and you can find links to all of the stuff that I'm working on. You can Google me at Bernard Leung. And this podcast is co-produced by Caroline and myself. Uh, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Himalaya. And of course, tweet to me if you have any feedback. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes or a star on Overcast or Pocket Cast. And of course, most importantly, just drop us a feedback. So once again, Steve, I look forward to speak to you again. And best of luck with the next book. And let's chat soon. Thank you so much, Bernard. It's been an absolute pleasure.